1: of death and grief. Each week, I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. Hey Griefsters, I hope you're having an okay week. Thank you so much for all your beautiful messages so far about the new series. It means so much to me, so thank you so much. I'm so glad that you've been enjoying it and enjoying the new guests that we've had on. Um, I have mentioned it before, but um, just to let you know, I've written a book. It is out next year. It is called You Are Not Alone, and you can pre-order it now. Uh, why should we pre-order it, out? Well, let me tell you, Griefster, because uh, pre-orders really help authors, basically, if lots of people pre-order it. Makes other people go, wow, gosh, a lot of people want this book. It must be good. Um, so if you would like to pre order it, I would be hugely, hugely grateful. I will tweet and Instagram the link in the usual places at The Griefcast. Thank you so much. This week, I'm talking to the incredible Kenny Ethan Jones. Kenny is a writer and an activist, a former model. Uh, He advocates on menstruation, body politics, mental health, and intimacy. He's an incredible, incredible person. If you follow him on Instagram, he's a huge following. You will know already what joy kenny brings to the world i had such a brilliant chat with kenny and it was really inspiring actually we have a lot of conversations at the grief cast and you know some of them are really difficult conversations but i felt so lifted after talking to kenny the way he sees the world the way he dealt with or is dealing with his grief is just yeah i enjoyed the conversation i know enjoy is not quite the right word we're always struggling with the language around grief but i hope you enjoy it too kenny came in to talk to me about his mum And his dad. So Kenny, who are we remembering today? My mum. Your mum? Oh, Kenny. And how long ago did your mum die?
0: Uh God. Approaching I think it's seven years now. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, so quite a long time ago.
1: Well, I don't think seven's long. Because obviously I'm I'm twenty plus (laughs) since my dad died. So for me, I think seven's tricky. Not to five. Um, people are still kind of there for you. They mm. kind of remember it. Five to ten, people kind of forget that that has happened. And, like, if you bring it up, they're like, oh, right, yeah, that. And you're like, yeah, I'm still sad about it. So, yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think seven is hard. It's I, a hard number. I
0: agree, because I think in that sense, like, I hadn't... I don't think I began to grieve till after year five. So it's yeah. like I'm really quite fresh in it, although it happened a long time ago. Actually going through the motions yeah. of it properly didn't happen yeah until five years after so
1: oh yeah definitely so what what happened how did she die
0: so the long story or the short story
1: (laughs) (laughs) whatever one you want to start with okay i'll
0: paint the picture so i was 21 i had just got offered a job as an international recruitment consultant in prague and yeah fantastic job i was at that point where i was like i'm gonna build a career for myself I was working in a shoe shop at the time and I just wanted something different. And I got offered this international job and I was just like, I'm going to take it. So I had a conversation with my mum about it. She started crying, you're leaving me. How dare you? I like, what am I going to do about you? And I was like, mum, like I need to become a man. Like I need to travel. Bless her. She was just like, I get it, but like, I'm going to miss you. And so we had this really like heartwarming moment where she was just like, I'm so proud of you. And so, yeah, I decided to take that job. I was there for about two months and we spoke every single day. This, do you know what? My mum is so old school, we spoke on Facebook. She didn't even text me or anything. Just like loads <laughs> of voice notes from Facebook. Um, and she made a habit out of calling me every evening just to see like how I was. And they were like two minute conversations sometimes. And yeah. it was just to be like, how are you? How's work? And I was just like, it's okay, it's weird. I'm eating different foods because I don't, I can't read it because it's not in English, so I don't know what I'm eating. <laughs> like I picked out, I think it was, uh, what was it, spoiled milk? Um, oh yeah, because they they sell yeah. that. So I kept taking the milk home and being like, why is it spoiled? I bought it yesterday, realizing <laughs> that I'm buying spoiled milk the whole time. So i was <laughs> laughing about that. Um, and then, yeah, I kept getting like things that were chicken, but they were steak and just really weird things. So, so basically that was my com- my whole conversation with my mum being like, mum, I need food. I don't understand what's happening. And her being like, come back, I'll cook for you. I'm like, mum, it's not that easy. <laughs> I can't come back. So yeah, that's what was happening. And my mum was always quite sick as a person. Like she just, her health was already up and down. She had cancer when I was 15 and they always kind of said her health is going to be up and down. And so when I left, I asked my friends, could, you know, could they come to the house and just check in on her and see how she is? And in the beginning, in the first like two months, everyone was like, you know, she seems fine. She's sad. She misses you, but she's OK. Mm. And because she had so many people coming and looking after her, I think that helped. And then obviously, as I yeah. spent more time there, people started to like, visit her less frequently. Yeah. And so that started to happen. And I remember, you know, the calls, it got to a point where I was working 10, 12 hour days. Mm. and so I didn't speak to her as much and so the conversations went from talking to her five minutes on the phone to two minutes on the phone to voice notes that I didn't reply to and we kind of just Mm. lost touch a little bit but I was always thinking about her and I remember one day she she called and something was just different in her voice like I could just tell that something was wrong and so the first thing I do I call my friend I say hey can you go check on my mum please see if she's okay my friend comes to the house she calls me back she goes I'm not sure. I'm not sure how she is. And I said, okay, like, what is it about her? She's like, she just seems a lot more messier. She was quite a neat person. And so to think mm-hmm. that she was messy and things were out of place was quite just out of character for her. And she was actually like, she just doesn't seem as bubbly. She was such a bubbly person. like. And so she just like, she doesn't seem herself. And I said, okay, I'll try to keep more of inv- an eye on her. So I was trying to make the time to call her. And I'd call her and sometimes she was sleeping at weird times. So she mm. didn't answer the phone. So I'm, I'm getting all of these little flags. I'm like, I don't really know what to do with them. And there was this one particular morning that I woke up and I, the best way to describe it, it was a whole bodily feeling that said, go home. Just every wow. fiber in my body said, go home. And I was like, I've never experienced that. I've never been so certain that I needed to do something in my yeah. entire life. Something just said, Kenny, pack a bag and go home. And I don't know, it, because of how strong the feeling was, I felt distressed and I didn't know what to do with it. And I was also like,
1: mm.
0: is this normal? Like, does this happen to people? Yeah, yeah. But I know from other grief stories that sometimes it does, it does happen. But obviously at the time mm. I didn't know this. And I was like, what do I do with this? I said, I've got to go home. You know, I don't, I don't know what else to do. I have to go home. And at the, at the time <laughs> I had no money. Because working in Prague, you didn't earn, you know, the salary that you did here. It was a lot less. So booking a flight yeah, home yeah. was so expensive. So I called my friend frantically, asking him to borrow me money so I could get on the first plane and come home. I think after hearing how distressed I was, he said, "Okay," sent me the money. I booked the flight. Yeah. I went to my job. I quit there and then. I said I'm going home.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. I just. I don't know. Something just literally. I. This happened. So this was the night before. And by the morning, I had already booked my flight, got into my job, given the key back to the office and said, I'm leaving. And booked my flight for later that evening. All of this happened in less like 24 hours.
1: Wow.
0: I go back, yeah, so we're at the office now. I'm selling like a couple of goodbye drinks with some of the people that I'm close with. This feeling in my body hasn't left.
1: Mm.
0: I go to the airport, there was an accident and so I missed my flight. Oh. Like that's the last thing I wanted to happen. Yeah. I was like, okay, I don't... I don't even know what to do about missing a flight because I've never really travelled. So I was like, how does this work? Do I get my money back? Because also I don't have enough money to book yeah, another flight. You're just
1: a baby at 21, aren't you? Like...
0: I don't know what was going on. Yeah. I just wanted to go home. And so anyways, they said, it's fine. We'll rebook your flight. But there isn't another one until the next morning. So I slept in the airport, calling my mum. She's kind of answering. I don't really know what's going on. I'm calling my sister. She's like, no, mum's fine. I'm like, no, mum isn't fine. Like I don't know. Like, just trust my feeling. Like, mum yeah. isn't fine. Anyways, come home, walk through the door. My mum is, like, crying hysterically because she's so happy to see me. She's like, I missed you, my boy. Like, why are you here? Because I didn't even say really I was coming home. I just just came back. I was like, mum, I quit my job. She's like, why did you quit? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't want to make a big deal about why I was there. So I was just like, I've come home. And I was just like, the job didn't work out for me. I wanted to be home. I missed, like, you. And she was like, okay, fine. And then it became apparent very quickly that she was unwell Mm. when i was there like by the next day she was clinging onto door frames while she was trying to walk through the house and she was trying to hide it yeah so so she was just like leaning towards things and i was like that's a bit out of character to do that yeah and then i realized and then the next day my mum's best friend came to the house and said i'm taking her to the hospital and obviously at 21 those things you don't really understand what's happening you don't you know like Like what do you do? You know, I trust my mum. She's the adult, so when I'm saying to her, "You're okay," and she's going, "I am," I yeah, believe her. Yeah. But she's because she she hated hospitals. She mm. absolutely hated hospitals. But so that was the last place she was gonna allow anybody to take her. But obviously, her best friend knew, and was like, "We need to go to the hospital." Yeah. So we went to the hospital. She's put in a wheelchair. She's cussing and swearing. She, she has a Liverpool accent, so she's cussing <laughs> and swearing. It's a little stronger for accent. <laughs> would be like, why the fuck am I in this wheelchair? da da da, da, da. Like, I'm fine. And then they're asking her things. Like, you know, how, how old are you? Who's the prime minister? All of these things. And I'm not really understanding why.
1: Yeah.
0: And my mum's just sat there looking at the doctors going, do you think I'm stupid? <laughs> like, I'm fine. And she's, she's convinced, I feel like, that she's fine. I said, okay. They said, we need to leave her in a hospital overnight. I said, okay. My sister decided to stay a little bit longer and talk to her. Anyways, two days later, she was comatized. She's put in an induced coma.
1: Oh, my God.
0: No one's really explained what's happened. I just know that she's in the intensive care ward. And that's basically all they've said.
1: Do you think she was holding it together for so long? And then once you're in a hospital setting, it's like, you yeah. can't fake it anymore, can you? It's yeah. like, doc- people are looking at you going, we know. And then just yeah. everything just went. Oh, my God, bless her.
0: I agree. And it's like now, on reflection, I could see so... This is, this is quite detailed and graphic, but I remember she, she always forgot to like, flush the toilet sometimes. Mm. And I remember looking in the toilet and thinking that she had cleaned the floor of the house and it wasn't, it was because her kidneys were failing oh. and her pee had become so brown that I just didn't associate it with being So she, yeah. she knew, she knew she was ill. Oh. She just didn't want to. And after she had passed, I found, she used to write on the back of envelopes, mm. things to remember. And she knew like it was a whole diagnosis of things of what she was unwell with basically it was multiple things but essentially it was because of alcohol mm. so end of stage alcohol situation really yeah. and um yeah she was in the hospital she went into the intensive care ward they didn't explain what kind of state she was in just that she was in an induced coma and that she needed to stay like that temporarily and i think as well where i was quite young they didn't want to give me the details so they were telling my older sister mm. and
1: much, like you can go and
0: see her. How much older Sorry. is your
1: sister? Is she
0: good couple of years? Right. Like okay. 14 years okay. Difference.
1: So you're getting that slight so, younger sibling where things fly past your head slightly, and other people yeah. are talking, <laughs> and you're like, I guess someone will tell me when it really matters. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. Everyone's kind of pushing me to the side, and I don't think in a way of being dismissive, but just
1: yeah, protective, you know, isn't let's,
0: it? Let's yeah, exactly. Just trying to be like let's let's keep as much away from Kenny as we can until necessary. Mm. But it became obvious when we walked into the intensive care ward how bad it was. Mm. So we open a door and they've got a, a, the double doors. because so you have the one door to come in and then you have yeah. a little waiting room section. And then there's another door when you go in. So we walk into, me and my sister walk into the first set of doors, the door closes, that door closes behind you and the other one opens. And I remember pushing the door open and seeing all of the machinery, all of these different tubes, a thing down her throat. Yeah. And being like, how, how is it two days ago yeah. she was fine or somewhat fine and now she's here? And my sister is such an incredibly strong woman and she just she she lost feeling in her legs and just completely dropped to the floor, hysterically, like, crying. And I'm trying to hold it together because I can see how hurt she is now, mm. uh, but I'm also witnessing the same thing and just in pure disbelief that this is where we're at right now. Yeah. And so I just, I just stood there and, like, tried to be there for my sister and said, OK, well, this is where we're at. And I don't know why, but in that moment there was this radical acceptance. Hmm. That it wasn't, I think, all of, I had all of those signs and now this was, OK, she's really ill. Yeah. And you just have to accept that because this is where we're at. So that's what happened and she stayed in the hospital in the intensive care ward for four weeks. She kind of came around in the third week and, you know, I was going to the hospital every day my sister was going to the hospital every day. They said to play music because she might respond to it. So he's playing her favourite tracks. I would talk to her every day my sister would talk to her every day. Her family came down from Liverpool. All of my siblings on my dad's side came. My dad came to the hospital and, you know, we had such a great support system, but it was becoming obvious that she wasn't getting any better. Yeah. And I think everyone was realising it, again, trying to protect me. Nobody wanted to say but at mm. this point, I'm like, I'm not stupid. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, four weeks had passed and it got to the point where they said, it's it's time to say goodbye, basically. Like, this is going to be it. We want to take all the tubes out. This, we, we've done what we can do. This is This is where we're at. And I just said... Like, okay, okay, they've tried. We've been here for four weeks now. Nothing else seems to be happening because she came around a little bit, but she couldn't, she could twiddle her toes and she could move her eyes, but she couldn't really talk mm. um, because the tube was there. And even when they took the tube out, just not fully responsive. And, you know, I remember sitting at the end of the bed again and seeing the colour of her pee, but like, she's not getting better. They had her on kidney dialysis. There were so many different things that they had tried at this point And I seen it and I know like the nurses, really did and the doctors really did try their best and so again just a point of acceptance this is where we are all I can do at this moment is be here and so they took all the tubes out they took everything out and they said you know she's probably going to pass away within the next like three to five hours I said okay they just sat there spoke to her and bless her the fighter that she is a whole like nine hours later, this woman is still fighting. It's <laughs> just like, mom, I know, I get why you're trying to stay here, yeah. but it's just, you know, it's not, it's not gonna be that. And so yeah, just I remember my sister because we had my sister, and my stepdad, and my niece. And she, my niece, was hungry. She's quite young, because so my sister's like, we're gonna go get her food. And I remember watching. I don't know what the machine is called, but like her heart rate just kind of consistently dipping and dipping. And I, it got to a point where I knew that she was going. I called my sister. I was like, "Mum's going to go now. You need to, you need to come back to the hospital." So she ran back to the hospital. And I think it was within like forty minutes. Wow. Then she had passed and just kind of stood there, and said, "Okay, you know, I don't, I didn't think in that moment I had even be- begin to understand what was going to happen next. Mm. I was just standing in pain." And this disbelief that a person who has been such a part of my life is just gone. Like, I've always had issues with kind of this no contact, cutting things off very, like, sterile. I I need time to let go. And I didn't, I got that in the sense of that I was there for the hospital for four weeks. But this was such a sudden, this person is breathing Mm. and now they're no longer. And it was so, the reason why it was so hard for me to lose my mum out of all people was because she was my person. And throughout my entire transition, my mum was the person who would call up the doctors and be like, you need to help my son, chase down all my appointments, give me my testosterone shots. Wow. We'd have conversations about, you know, surgery and girls at the time and, you know, navigating being a young trans person. And it, she was just so much more than a mum. Like, yeah. I feel like we were siblings and my sister was the mum because yeah. we were so bad together <laughs> that my sister would be the one to tell us off. <laughs> And so it was just losing that as well as the mother figure, as well as your best friend, as well as your support system, as well as your basically your caregiver mm. in many aspects. It's just like what would you what do you do now
1: Oh Kenny, that is really extraordinarily difficult, and I think it's interesting, isn't it, because the thing about time that we sometimes when it's our situation. You know, you said, oh, I had four weeks, but it, four weeks is nothing. It's nothing yeah. to go from living in a different country <laughs> thinking, oh, maybe I should call her. Sounds like things aren't great. You know, probably need a good catch up. Make sure she, you know, all mm. the stuff you have when you're away from a parent or you're worrying about them to, to hospitals, to intensive care, to doctors, to all of that stuff. It, it, that's, you know, your world was very fixed and then it, yeah. it got turned upside down. And like you said, when you lose the person... The person who, obviously, what what an amazing woman to have been so supportive, to have just obviously loved you, just pure love. Yeah. To suddenly lose that is, it's a lot of shock. It's a lot of shock, I guess, that's my interpretation. Because... Like you said, one minute someone's there, one minute they're not. And, and, and four weeks isn't really four weeks, you know? Four, no. Like four weeks staring at a wall, watching paint dry, yeah, long. But four weeks watching someone you love disappear, like incrementally, like that's no time at all. You've known them 21 years. Like that's, yeah. it, you can't compare. I mean, what did happen afterwards, I guess, like, because you, you were so young, your sister must have been really young as well. It's not like yeah. there was a grown-up there. Um, yeah. How did you cope? god <laughs> that's a big I question re- isn't it, I, so... I, I didn't really yeah. that's the
0: answer yeah. um, so i remember i remember leaving the hospital so everything's done and dusted now you know we've said our goodbyes i'm like okay well you, the only place to go is home mm. and i rode a motorcycle at the time and i remember going downstairs and it was about 9am in the morning and it's in Paddington, this hospital. Mm. So St. Mary's Hospital. And so there's so many people that are going to work. Like, everybody's going on with their normal life. And I'm standing there thinking, none of you understand how much pain I'm in. Like, mm. I just felt like I wasn't even there. Like, everybody's moving around me. The world is moving. I'm, I'm watching the sky and the clouds move. And I feel stuck mm. and just pain. That's all I can feel. So I don't even remember going home. yeah. I got home I made it home but I don't remember how I got here I remember being at home and just sitting there and said well that's it Mm -hmm. and I think at that point I had lost hope obviously because I in the in the time that she was in the hospital was like maybe maybe she'll be okay yeah you know the the little bit that says to you maybe Mm -hmm. she'll make it and so when you're faced with that and it's happened you're sat at home, there is no hope anymore. Mm. So it's just, it's just the pain of it. And I have never been taught to process emotions. Mm. I think lots of boys and men are not taught how to process emotions. And so I didn't know what to do. And n- I'd never experienced this kind of loss. There were you know losses in my family, but nothing of nobody that was really close to me. Yeah. So this was my first experience with grief in itself. And I'm going to be honest... I screamed my heart out, cried my heart out to the script, and drank Jan- Jack Daniels for about two weeks straight. <laughs> I'm not even gonna lie; that's basically what happened.
1: I mean, like, you, I we all got you got to do <laughs> what you got to do. Like, there's no right or wrong. Whatever it is, and I always, I thoroughly recommend the screaming because I don't think people scream enough. Yeah. I think people just go, "Oh, I can't make that noise," but it's like you—it's ha- so visceral what's happening to you when you lose a parent. Like, you have to scream, and if you need to, just get a pillow and muffle it. Or out yeah. to the sky. That's you have to get it out. That's so much pain in you. You have to get it out.
0: Yeah. It was the energy aspect because the crying wasn't enough.
1: Mm. The crying
0: felt, the crying felt like it relieved some of the pain but the screaming felt like it relieved some of the anger yeah, of it all.
1: Yeah.
0: Of being a 21-year-old that's lost his mum that now feels like he has no support system. Mm. Although I did, but she was the main support system. Yeah, she was yeah. the person who seen me the most. Mm. And so knowing that I've lost that in itself was one of the reasons, on top of everything else, why it was just so much more painful. And so I did that for, yeah, about two weeks straight. And <laughs> I'm not proud of this now, but everybody was trying to contact me, obviously, and just like checking on me. And it got to a point where I said to my friends and my family, I will tell you that I'm alive and that's what I'm saying. Because at this point, there's no conversation to be had. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm broken. Let me be broken. And my friends would come and knock on my door, or like strangers, because my mum was um, a community worker. And so everybody knew her. Yeah, and yeah. so it wasn't just a loss for me, it was a loss for the community. So people wanted to come to the house and knowing how young I was, wanted to be like, are you OK? And I remember I wrote... A, a sign on my door said that saying that if you knock the door I'll knock you out because I <laughs> <laughs> because I was sick of wow. everyone coming to the house and I, I was just so angry everyone I being like,
1: like I'm just going to go and see if Kenny's all right no maybe no, we'll leave it. Don't, don't let's, it let's leave it and today
0: you know I mean? <laughs> don't do it don't do it and that, that probably stayed at the door for a good like another two weeks three weeks <laughs>
1: That's hilarious.
0: Yeah, it worked.
1: Yeah, it whatever you've got to do. <laughs> whatever you've got to do. And that's the thing is, I think that's really, um, there's something really bold about that. Because again, I, when I speak to lots of people, often they'll say mm. what I wanted to do was put a sign on the door. Mm. But I didn't because I can't, oh, you can't do that. I can't do that. You can't scream and tell people to go away. But I think it sounds like you really lived your truth like mm. as only you can. And I think that's amazing because... I hear so many stories of people doing the right thing, the polite thing, and mm. then they're they're in so much pain, pouring tea for people they don't know and don't want to be there, and <laughs> <are> like <laughs> screaming yeah. inside. I think that's way healthier for because sometimes you need the world to just go away. Just go, yeah. give me like you said, just give me the time. You will eventually, you know, peek your head out. But just to say. Mm. I'm not going to be civil. I'm not going to be able to make a sentence. So don't bother. Just like <laughs> take your lasagnas and come back in a month. <laughs> like, I think that's really impre- impressive. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Lloyd.
0: I think yeah, looking back on it now, it was a boundary.
1: Mm, yeah, it was a really good. Yeah. Sa- yeah,
0: me saying that this is what I need right now, and you're going to respect it. And if you don't respect it, although I don't want to be hitting people like that, I would, mm. I wouldn't, I would have done that. It was it was saying how strong I was in, in my decision there, that, you know, yeah. if you come and you knock the door, I will knock you out. No one did, so it never <laughs> happened.
1: But... <laughs> they knew, they were like, definitely, yeah. he's not joking. Just, yeah.
0: <laughs> don't do it, just don't, don't, do it. Do it. don't do it. Leave him alone, it's fine. But, you know, there was other ways, you know, after a while, people would drop me food and just make sure that I was, like, eating mm. and my sister would have conversations with me about the drinking. Can you drink a little bit less? Is there any other kind of coping mechanisms that you can lean on? So I'm not there yet. Like, it will happen, yeah. but I'm not there yet. And I'm not about to fight myself through something that's already very painful. Mm. Like what you're saying about doing a polite thing and basically doing things for others. I wasn't in that space. Mm. I was doing everything for me. I was taking care of me. I was my number one priority at that point. And there was so much other things that I was dealing with at that time as well that made it so much harder. Because, so when she passed, obviously I had no job now. mm because I had left, so I had no income. I barely had savings because the difference of how much I was earning there was yeah, yeah. minimal. Um, I was there for three dogs because we had three dogs. Um, I was there for a the two-bedroom flat that I was to pay for in London, in like quite a central location. And I was basically like being pushed out of my home at the time mm. because they were like, you don't have enough money to take care, like pay for your bills. It was council house. Mm. And so they were like, you don't have enough money to be able to take care of the bills. And I don't know why the council do this. It's one of the most frustrating things. It's like I'm going through this really bad loss and the first thing that you think about is kicking me out and downsizing me to a one-bedroom flat.
1: Oh, my God. Like, yes, yeah, let me breathe. Like, oh, my goodness.
0: That was literally three weeks in. Oh, for And getting for emails sake. and calls. Oh. Yeah. Being like, you know, we need you to move out of the property. And I'm saying, like... I can't even think right now, and you're you're asking me to move out of my house. Like my mum's belongings are still in yeah. that bedroom. I've done I've done nothing at this point, and so
1: that's outrageous. I
0: I had to try to battle that at the time, and luckily enough, like I I know good people and they helped me through it. And for anybody reading, uh, sorry listening to this, you don't have to leave your home. Mm. Um, you can as long as you can prove that you can pay the rent. It's not an issue. You don't have to downsize, but they portray it as you do. Mm. And my stepdad had a good job at the time, so he was like. I'll make sure that you have enough money to pay your rent until you can get a job. And so everything kind of was fine, but I was still trying to grieve. Then I was left with the three doggos and trying to take care of them. And I've never had that responsibility. I'm like, what am I meant to look... (laughs) This is basically a whole person. Three little dogs is a whole person. (laughs) Oh my God, definitely. Yeah, so so I don't really know what to do with this, neither. And being a 21-year-old at that time and going from trying to be the man and have a mm. career and build myself up to basically being such a small version of myself, not feeling like myself, and having my life completely, like, flipped upside down, having no income, like, mm. not feeling like myself. It's, it's just so much to deal with at, at quite a tender age as well. Oh, my
1: God, yeah. 21 is so young. It's so young. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's a tricky, isn't it? Because, I, I, again, having spoken to so many people, often... I think when you are in your early 20s, there is this like, oh, I should be a grown up. Like, 21 mm. is a grown up. And it, you know, you look at 21 you grown, grown now, up. you're like, you're not, you're a baby, you're a baby, baby. And I know I speak to people who are of that age, and obviously they find that offensive. And they're like, I am a grown up. Like, you are, but also you're not. And, when you're grieving, like I think what you just said that was really interesting. You sort of become this small version of yourself because you mm. do shrink because the world's hurt you. So you sort of shrink into this tiny version of yourself, and you. It is really hard to advocate and kind of go out and be like, "No, you're not doing that to me," and I, I, yeah. I, that can't happen for the because you do feel so raw, you know, like the skin's been yeah. taken off. So yeah, it's, it's it's an awful lot to deal with, and I think it's really, I mean, testament to your mum. I think mm. that the way she taught you to look after yourself because I love that your first instinct yeah. was like, and I think amazing that your sister said, look, can you stop, can you stop drinking a bit? <laughs> and you yeah. were like, no, because I I think that's really, that's a great, that she said, are there other coping mechanisms? I think, God, what a way to support someone say like, I understand. Yeah. I'm not saying stop drinking. You're drinking too much. I'm yeah. saying, I know this is coping. Is there another one? And you being like, not right now. Like that's such an, those are two incredibly self-aware people and I think a lot of what happens when people are polite or do the right thing, inverted commas, is because they don't know what they need. So when someone yeah. else comes along and goes, oh, I'm going to come in your house and I'm, you're going to make me tea and I you're going to talk to me, they think, oh, well, maybe that's what I need. You seem very confident. And I think that, that, is, that is rare that you, that, that you have the ability within yourself to go, no, I'm going to drink for a bit. I'm going to listen to the script. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's how I need to get through this because that first bit, it's just hell as anyone tells you it's hell the first six months the first year are just a a blur of madness so to be aware at least of like okay I know this isn't great but I am doing it I think is (laughs) obviously I don't advise (laughs) drinking your way through grief at all (laughs) at all but if you can be aware of the things you're doing you know I'm yeah. I'm eating this because I need this is how I'm coping or I'm watching 25 hours of television I'm on my phone 24 hours a day but to have a slight voice in your head go yeah this is coping from the pain mm. um so what was that first year like do you remember much of it some people have just like a blank or was it just kind of oh, a blur God.
0: it got worse oh no it got worse it got really it got really bad um so three months after one of my dogs died oh, and no. she was my child my little lulu she was my childhood dog and you know they say that doggies die from being heartbroken and to be honest with you in that sense i do believe it because yeah. she those two had such a lovely relationship like they were they were they were the same person and so the, yeah it became a bit harder from that because i was going through another grief and in the same time that my dog died i found out that my dad was sick oh god And so I was like, okay. And at this point, nobody wanted to tell me again what was going on Mm. because there wasn't just Kenny's 21, but Kenny just watched his mum die and just buried his mum. And so everybody was trying to leave me out of it. But I I think because I had that inkling the first time, once I see my dad, I had the same inkling and I just knew. Mm. And all I could do in that moment was say, okay, Kenny, we're going to have to deal with this again we're going to have to deal with this again. And I, I kind of, I just, I just knew, I just knew, just knew. And so he, he was, my dad was never sick. Like, I hadn't seen a man have a cold in my entire life. So I was just like, he's invincible, clearly, he's fine. And he, you know, he did all the right things to take care of himself. So the idea that he was sick was just <clears throat> foreign. Yeah. So basically he found out he had cancer. Oh God. And said, okay, like, how bad is it? And all of these discussions are happening. They're like, oh, no, it's treatable. Like, you know, he's going to go on to uh, got chemotherapy. I said, OK, that's fine. And so on my dad's side, I have 11 siblings.
1: Wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's a large family. Yeah, yeah. And so there was so much discussion. And, you know, when you have that many siblings, there's always this kind of dynamic where everybody has different opinions. Mm. And, you know, you're just such different people. And I think we're all strong headed. That's what we got from our dad. And so when he got sick, there was a conversation around how he should take care of himself. And I remember being at his house and everybody talking about, basically about him while he's lying there. And, you know, he should do chemo, he should do this. Like, he should take care of himself. He should go to Jamaica because if he was gonna die, that's where he wanted to die. All of these different things. And I'm sat there and I remember just feeling angry. And be like, he's literally there. Why is nobody asking him what he wants? And why am I, I'm I'm the second youngest in my family. Why am I being the second youngest, the only person that's seeing this as an issue? Mm -hmm. And so I turned around and I said to my dad, I called him Papa. So I said, Papa, what do you want? He said, I want, you know, I want to be alive. Like, I want to see all of you grow up. Like, it's not my time to go. And I said, okay, well, you do chemo. He said, okay. And that's what all the family wanted, basically, Mm -hmm. for him. And then it came to a point where we were kind of taking turns to look after him at his house. And me and him had quite a deep conversation where I said, is it actually what you want to do? And he said, I don't want to do it. He said, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to go through chemo. I don't want to do that to myself. He had seen his friends go through that process. And mm. I just, just didn't want to do that for himself. And I, so I said to him, don't do it. You don't have to. Like, this is your life. Mm. And as much as I want you to be here for as long as you possibly can... If you don't want to do that and you would rather live out your best life while you can, I would rather you do that. And I remember like me and him have had quite a rocky relationship because growing up and being trans, he didn't necessarily agree Mm. um, in the beginning. And it was very much like stepping stones with him. And so we, we, we took time to build our relationship. I remember like small things just to give context. He would always come to the house and sit on the end of my bed and just ask me how I was. And then one day I basically I told him I was trans and he said, OK, didn't really know what to do with that information. And, you know, I said to him, I'm going to change my name. I'm going to cut my hair. And he got really angry about I was like, I don't want you to do it. And then I did it. And <laughs> he didn't he didn't really like it. And so there was but he he still stayed around and he still came and visited me and we still tried to build our relationship. And, you know, it was it was very it was clear that he loved me yeah he loved me fiercely and that he wanted to try he just he was just grown in a different a different generation that yeah. his wasn't accepting of trans people but he loved me as his child and there you know we took stepping stones and he stopped calling me so my previous name was kelsey and so obviously my name now is kenny so he started calling me k as a middle ground he then started to introduce me as his son to people and yeah. i used to like cry silently in the corner because i was like oh my god he called me son um and just little things like he changed the way that he got me like birthday cards that said son oh you know just like really small things over years yeah. so we had always had that quite tough relationship but it felt like he was the person which I really had to I really understood building a relationship with somebody because everything came so easily with my mum yeah. my mum was just like number one support I love you you're my son fuck everybody else <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: whereas my dad took a while to come around. We really had to fight for the love that we had for one another and understand we, we both had different perspectives. And we had just gotten to a place where I feel like he fully kind of accepted me. And so to now know that he's going to go, yeah. it was like, I felt like we just got to the point where we were friends. He wasn't just my dad, mm. now; he was my friend. And so I just said to myself, I'm, I'm going to make the most of this. I want to have as many conversations with him as I can. And that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what I did. I just, I went to go see him all the time. Then he moved to a hospice and he was such a donut when he was younger. So basically back in Jamaica, he um, <laughs> he had an accident while he was um, with a girl on a motorbike. But he, he shouldn't have been with the girl basically. Right, okay. So I always used to laugh at him and be like, that's what happens. It's karma. <laughs> um, and so I was like laughing with him about that and then obviously I got into motorbikes and I love motorbikes so we talked about our love for that he loved cars we spoke mm-hmm. about our love for cars he got really deep at one moment and started to talk about how proud he was and that he was sorry that he wasn't there in the way that he should have been oh. and that he should have tried a lot sooner to kind of be there in the way that he was now um and it's just like I'm proud of you like out of I think out of all of my siblings, not to say that they haven't gone through things, mm. obviously everybody does, but he said that I feel like you've kind of had a lot of different, more obstacles to deal with in your life. And to be at, because I think I was, I was 22 at this point, to be 22 and be so strong in who you are mm. and fight for yourself and just, you know, be happy. Like that takes a lot. And so, yeah, we just had lots of those kind of conversations. And I went to the hospice one day and I just he was it wasn't him anymore. It wasn't him. He was he was half there, halfway out, and I knew it. And I didn't feel like I could watch him go because I'm watching my mum. So I decided to leave. This was at six PM. I get a call at eight PM saying he's gone.
1: Wow.
0: So that happened and it just I think at that moment it wasn't just it was thinking about all the things that I'm going to lose. Like, Mm. I'm never going to have my parents there if I ever get married. Um, I'm not going to know certain parts of my upbringing because my parents aren't there to ask. And so there were so many different aspects of myself that I started to feel like I was losing. Mm. And so again, kind of losing my identity because you lose yourself in the grief and then I'm literally losing answers to my life because I'm not going to have them because the people that I should be asking aren't here. And so it just that year felt like losing myself, grappling onto things, having conversations with my sister and, and my other siblings and asking, you know, how was dad when he was this age or how was I at this age? And them trying to make sense of things for me because I had so many questions now that I knew I wasn't going to have answers to. And it just, it just felt like, just like everything, everything was happening too much and too much was happening at the same time. And just like, just just a lot. And, I was trying to uh, have a normal life, so to speak, mm. trying to go out and spend time with friends and get another job and rebuild myself while I'm in the most painful experience that could probably happen to someone of that age. Bloody hell. <laughs> like, yeah, the, like, that is lot. such
1: a lot. That is such a lot. I think what you said yeah. there's really, really interesting about um, grief and identity, which I've, I've thought before, but I think the way you're describing it is so brilliant. That you, you know, when you lose a parent, you like you said, you lose all these answers. And I completely relate to that, obviously, losing my dad at 15. Mm. Like, all these things that, you know, every year you're like, oh, I wonder what... I wonder what they did then. Like all these new new questions. You know, you can only ask the questions you have at the time. And when you're young, Mm -hmm. obviously your set of questions is quite specific. (laughs) And then when you get (laughs) older, you think, why did I ask them that? Like I should have been asking about this. Way more interesting. But, you you know, you've only got what you've got at the time. And when someone dies, you do, you shatter. You know, you really shatter. Mm -hmm. And you're having to rebuild yourself. And then, you know, for you just to just be on that process of like, okay, I've lost my mum. How can I rebuild myself? To lose your dad and... It is a complete, a strange kind of obliteration that you have to then find all these pieces of yourself that are everywhere, you know, and and get them back. And I think, you know, like what your dad said about you... I think is really true because at 22, to have that clear sense of like, this is who I am. This is what I need. This is who I am. This is what I need from mm-hmm. other people. That is so rare. Like that is really rare. I think people take their lives to think what who they are, what they want, what they don't like. Like people go for years <laughs> eating things they don't like because they just don't know. And then they're like, I actually don't even like this food or this person or this <laughs> town. So I think, yeah, I mean, that is, you know, that is, that is such a lot to deal with is what to say but yeah I think that idea of grief and identity is is really interesting and especially I think when you have a strong sense of who you are anyway that's what I'm trying to say mm. so if you have a strong sense of who you are and you kind of you know you've already got that and then the world is always trying to disagree with you because that's what the world does mm. and then grief yeah. smashes you apart you you know <laughs> you sort of have to go oh maybe the world's right like is this who I am what am I doing what like it's really really hard and to lose two parents I think what you're hitting on it from the, obviously I, my mum's still here but the people I speak to who yeah. are um you know for a better word in the orphan club it's like all yeah. those all those doors are closed you know yeah. all those doors are closed and that's why yeah thank god if you have siblings or you have family you can still talk to like that is so precious and i try tried to explain that before to people like if I find a photo of him I, you know, mm. as a guy, I'm like, oh, it's gold. everything is gold dust. You know, it's gold dust. You're like, yeah. oh my god, how he? What he's seven there? Like, what's he doing? Where was he? What happened? Oh my, because it's just these bits that you don't, you know, you don't get to say to someone. You
0: discover them yeah. as well. It's weird. It's. I remember finding. My mom used to do like cross stitching.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And so
0: she she made this particular <laughs> one for my dad, and basically it was like a map of Jamaica oh. and some of his like favorite like political people. Yeah and i was like when you know when did she make this for him and um, why why cuz i only found it when my dad passed and he we went through his belongings yeah
1: yeah
0: and um, everyone was like this must have been your mum kenny i was like oh my god it is what what is this <laughs> did she make this this is incredible i need to hang this up this is mine and cuz yeah. we were all kind of claiming stuff which was going to be who's and whose i was like yeah but i think as well with grief and identity and all those things like so much changes and it's only now that I'm realising how much of me changed. And, like, really quite weird things. Mm. Like, my attachment style. I don't know if you read the book, Attached.
1: I, I, I haven't, but I'm aware of attachment okay. styles. But, please, yeah, say say more. Yeah. I'm sure I don't know as much as you.
0: So, there's... In this book, it talks about there being three attachment styles. Yes. So, anxious, avoidance, secure. Yes, yeah, yeah. And prior to my mum passing, I was secure. Mm. Like I was so confident in who I was um i wasn 't really somebody who got like jealous mm-hmm. or any of those things, and I was confident to love with my whole heart. What I found when my mum died and then after my dad dying and getting into relationships was that I just wasn 't able to give my heart away in the same way because I was so scared yeah. of my heart being anywhere near that heart again yeah. and so for years, I think it was only with my last partner that I really tried to let myself actually like feel things full-heartedly because mm. it just felt impossible and so grief takes so many little different parts of you sometimes and even my like level of optimism towards the world and thinking you know being that 21 year old before those things happened like i could do everything <laughs> you know do you know what i mean you just yeah. you just feel i don't know i'm very passionate and i'm very like business-minded and i, was, like, I can do anything i want to do but Losing that support system mm. that was so dear to me made me think, well, I, I I could do that and I can do that. But my mental health started to suffer mm. more because I didn't have that one person, specifically my mom, who I felt like seen all parts of me, yeah. every single side of me, and loved me regardless and accepted me regardless, good and bad. And I seen the same in her. Like I said, I didn't really feel like I started to grieve until year five. And it just that's really when I would say I started to rediscover myself. Like, the rest of it was just getting through it. Yeah. Honestly, getting through it. Just surviving. And, you know, I started to get to a point where my career really started to boom. And I fronted a period campaign and made history by doing that. And the only person I wanted to tell was my mum. Yeah. You know, you want to go to them for the achievements. And when shit hit the fan, the only person I wanted to talk to was her. And so I had to find ways to cope, like... I would go basically outside the hospital. There is this like nice little waterfront bit and I would sit there and I just talk to her and I'd be like, mum, I did this campaign. You'll laugh because it was about periods <laughs> and you know how moody I was when I had a period. <laughs> um, and I would say like, I miss you. How are you? Um, the doggos are okay. I know you're with Lulu now. I know you're taking care of her. And like literally I, I used to put my headphones in because I didn't want people thinking that, you know, yeah, I, yeah, was, yeah. I was crazy. But I was literally talking out loud and, you know, I, sometimes I would I would go there and I would just cry and I would bring her favourite drink and I would drink mine and I I always do it. like I created, like, a grief ritual where I would always do it next to water. I don't know, something for me and being next to water just felt so, like, I felt more connected to her. Mm. You know, it's it's hard. Like, I I still have her bed. Mm. And that's a really weird thing. Like, I got rid of... and this old house that you can see nobody else is going to see it. But <laughs> this old house is in the background. Oh, she built it. Oh, wow. And there's certain things... Yeah, it's... I'll show you after give you the tour. But yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> she built everything inside of it. She's got like mini family photos and everything. Oh
1: my God.
0: But I think, yeah, you start to start to hold on to things in different ways mm. and you start to make peace with things.
1: I feel like, it's funny, isn't it? Because you're, you're very privileged to have a parent that loves you. And you're very, not sorry, yeah. you, one. One is very privileged. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And that's a really great thing. But when they go, it makes the world so wobbly. And I used to describe it as like Mm. you're at the deep end, you know, you go to put your foot down and you're like, whoa, Mm. whoa, where's the bottom?
0: (laughs) Where's the rest of it? (laughs) Yeah,
1: like, hang on a minute. I thought, because that level of support that you've you've grown up with or you're used to just disappearing, it is really shaky. And, but the good thing about it, I, from my experience is that if you Mm. know they loved you, it doesn't stop the grief being, it doesn't make the grief easy. It doesn't, you know, Mm. grief, there's no easy route with grief but I think when when you come through it a bit at the light at the end is I do know I was loved and I think that Mm. is really helpful and obviously if you're listening to this and you and you didn't feel like that like I'm not saying things are better or worse it's just I found it helpful um to come out of it and feel like okay Despite all the complications and all the sadness, like I feel like I do know I was loved, and that can kind of start yeah. to rebuild your floor a bit, I guess when you're trying to put your mm. feet down and and obviously they they loved you so much that like, you can just tell it just like beams yeah. out of you, which is like credit to to you know both of them, but obviously your mum, who just didn't didn't let you in for a second think you weren't important and you weren't loved, which yeah. is what else can you do for a child? I think that's that's, do you know
0: what that's what it is it's you know as hard as it was I'm I'm very grateful mm-hmm. you know I know some people don't get to meet their parents yeah. I know some people have parents that don't love them fiercely and so as much as it was hard and you know I wish I had more time who doesn't wish that yeah and I'm just I just sit here and I go do you know what like she was I feel like as well because she was such an incredible one in like so many different ways even having those 21 years with her mm. will carry me for 70 years, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, it's yeah. just she installed so many good values in me, and she showed me in so many ways, especially as being a trans person, navigating to t- today's society. She was like, You are loved. Like I and if nobody else loves you, I love you. <laughs> and uh, do you know what I mean? And you love you. Yeah. And being like having that little bubble and just knowing that even when she left, although it was hard and I was broken, and to some degree I still am, I'm good, Mm. you know? I I love me. She loves me. And so I'm able to carry that even today, even though the last time we hugged or spoke actual words to one another was nearly seven years Mm. ago. Like, she still feels so present in my life, Mm. in a sense. And I do things purposely now to hold on to her a little bit more, like I have our. I found some, I digged out some newer pictures that I haven't had. And I, I rotate through different pictures as the years go on. And, you know, I find ways to keep her memory alive. And, you know, as a, as a writer, I write about her a little bit more. And I think finding ways to keep her alive in, in spirit and, you know, people, just keeping her, just keeping her here Mm. with me as many, in whatever way is possible is also important because... I think that's what that's what helps me that's what helps me get through it all so yeah it's but like you said grief is just I think it's probably one of the most like unexplainable yeah emotions to Mm. go through it's so hard to find the words um and there's no perfect way of dealing with it and so much of your life will change but you know what I wouldn't be Kenny Mm. if it wasn't for that do you know what I mean I wouldn't I don't even think I would be an advocate if it wasn't for what I experienced, because I generally don't believe I would have had tough enough skin to be able to deal with what I'm dealing with today wow. if it wasn't for that experience. Yeah. Like, it just, it it breaks you. Mm. But then you pick up those pieces and you go, I'm a, like, I'm a soldier now. and And you just, you don't, I just think that once you've experienced that kind of loss, it's like whatever else happens to me yeah yeah do you know what i mean this is this is a walk in the park and it's sad to say that it shouldn't be that but there's something about that losing something that's so important to you losing that somebody that's so important to you that just makes you go fuck it i think at moments it's about trying to find the beauty within the pain of it all because if you just sit in the pain there's no fun in that (laughs)
1: no Kenny thank you so much you have spoken just so beautifully about and I completely forgot which I normally do to ask their names at the beginning so what was your mum's name?
0: Edwina and my dad's name was Lloyd.
1: Edwina and Lloyd oh well I appreciate Lloyd obviously (laughs) (laughs) what a guy um thank you so much it was just so so lovely to talk to you and I think yeah I completely agree you know these things are awful but some beauty weirdly comes out of them and that's that's all you can have and yeah just thank you for talking to me today about Edwina and Lloyd I really appreciate it
0: uh, listen I've had such a great time it's nice to be able to talk about them so thank you for having me
1: you can follow Kenny on Instagram at Kenny Ethan Jones it's Kenny K-E-N-N-Y-E-T-H-A-N Jones J O. M E S. You can follow us at Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was recorded remotely. It was edited by Kate Holland. Music by The Glue Ensemble. Artwork by Jade Perkin. And remember, you are not alone.